Hello and welcome once again to the Foundry Church podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. I don't know how many of you normally watch the video version of this podcast on Spotify. Um, If that's you, you will notice this week things are a bit different because we do not actually have any video of me right now. Uh, We're doing just audio this week for the uh, the intro and outro, and, uh, and I guess if you just listen to the podcast on any other podcast player, you only ever get the audio, so no change for you. Sorry for this diversion. Um, this is week seven of our current series called The Many Faces of God. We're taking a walk through uh, the Enneagram, which is a, a wonderful little spiritual um, tool to help us understand ourselves and uh, the people around us and ultimately the heart of God. Uh, in a deeper way, um, I, one of the things that we've we've said a little bit, but I don't know that we've that we've directly said a lot, is just how each of these um, nine enneagram types sort of represent and reflect these different um, attributes and qualities of God. Um, but it's it's true that each of us have a, at least a little bit of all nine because we are all made in the image of God. We're not. We're not all made in one particular facet of the image of God. And so even though we may have um, one type that is dominant uh, and another type that is, you know, maybe what we call our wing of that dominant type, um, it's not uncommon at all uh, for each of us to find a little bit of something of ourselves in each of these nine types because that's the way we were created. So uh, this week uh, we are talking about the Enneagram Fours. Uh, we're focusing on the creativity and depth of God, and we hope that you enjoy this message from the many faces of God. Welcome. I am so very glad you're here, whether you're joining us in person or online. My name is Seth. This is the Foundry, where we're all about a better you and a better world. The good news is I have both the microphone on and the headset on today. And so I feel like everything else, it's, everything else is just sizing on the cake at this point, so we're doing good. Uh, we are in, I don't know what week of our long series, but we're like on the back end side of this thing. Uh, and what if you don't, haven't been here, don't know what we're doing, we're using this spiritual growth tool known as the Enneagram to help us to better do the thing that Jesus has instructed us to do in Matthew chapter 22 when he said this thing where he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this week we're looking at type four, uh, if you've been with us. So uh, we're going to look to Dr. Deborah Brayboy, our Enneagram expert, to give us some insight on the type for the individualist. Okay, take a look. Good morning, Foundry family. Today, I want to talk about the romantic individualist. There are Enneagram type fours. Fours are authentic, deep, creative, expressive, and yet temperamental people. They live primarily in their imagination and feelings. There are deep feelers of the Enneagram. Deep down, though, they have this hidden idealized self or a vision of the person that they really passionately desire to become. This idealized self is so incredibly creative, socially adept, and universally desired. They measure themselves, though, against this idealized self, and they're constantly feeling like they come up short. They just don't measure up. 
Feeling that they're somehow defective or flawed, they believe no one will truly love them. So they strive, though, to become this idealized self, just to be loved. The core fear is being inadequate, emotionally cut off, plain, mundane, boring, defective, flawed, or insignificant. In other words, they just don't feel like they're going to be good enough. The core desire then is being unique, special, and finding their authentic self. I once worked with a client who was a type four, and when they discovered they were a four on the Enneagram, they were like, oh, that's so me. And then they were a little disappointed and said, oh, there are others out there like me. And I said, yes, but you're all special and unique. The core weakness then for our fours is envy, feeling that they're tragically flawed, something foundational is missing inside them, and that others possess qualities that they lack. The core longing for a type four, you are seen and loved for exactly who you are, special and unique. The childhood message for force is that it's not okay to be too much and not enough. See, our type force feel so deeply that sometimes they get told that they're too much. Other people can't handle all of the feelings that they feel because they, they feel intensely and deeply that sometimes they get that message. So type fours bring a unique beauty, depth, creativity, and understanding to the world around them. And they embrace a wide range of emotions and experiences. They're in tune with profound despair and suffering, and they bravely press into those depths to discover rich meaning in all areas of their life. They're eager to explore a complicated world in search of meaning and authentic connection. They don't really like shallow, superficial connections. They would rather go and have a long conversation and somebody be vulnerable and authentic and deep with them. That's really what they truly value and respect. Um, type fours though really feel burdened by a constant belief that they're lacking something that others possess. There's something about them that's missing, and they feel this deeply in their spirit, which is why they have this idealized self that they're always striving to become. Struggling with the feelings of envy, they compare themselves to others, believing that those around them possess something that they don't. When they attempt to find their unique significance apart from Christ, they can become self-absorbed and temperamental. They're painfully self-conscious, spending a great deal of energy ruminating on how different they really are. They may feel anxious around others, always wondering what they think about them, always perpetually seeing their weaknesses. But the truth is they have a great strength in their ability to emote and relate and connect with others. I hope you learned something about our Enneagram 4s. Have a great week. Okay, so quick stats on this. The four, the individualist, they operate out of the feeling center. By the way, just to update you in case you don't know, the two, three, fours, they're a part of the feeling center, which means they operate out of the heart. The eight, nines, ones that we've already talked about, they are the instinctual center, so they operate out of the gut, the body. And then as next week, we'll get into the five, six, sevens, which are the thinking type. They, they're the thinking center, and so they operate out of the brain. 
uh, out of the mind. So the dominant emotion for the feeling center is shame. So most of their actions are based on covering or dealing with or controlling the shame. Basic fear, they have no, their basic fear is that they have no identity or personal significance. So their basic desire is to find themselves and their significance. Their, next slide, <coughs> key motivations is to express their individuality to create and surround themselves with beauty, to maintain certain moods and feelings, and to withdraw in order to protect their self-image. Uh, they grow, they integrate towards the one, and they stress and they disintegrate towards the two. So if you are a four, or if you think you're a four, you know you're a four, we're running out of colors, but we're getting close, so you get to pick which one is the most beautiful color according to the four. four uh, do we have any fours in here? Do we know if we have, what color do you want? Well, that would be pink. Yeah, that's pink. You like, you want that one? All right, we'll go with that one. I like that. All right, so. <laughs> you know, I had this idea, uh, the staff had an idea. We thought it would be funny if each week I intentionally screwed up cutting the yarn, but I did it in different ways. Like if I brought out like a, like a chopper, like a paper chopper, or like some hedge trimmers. But I never got to it, and I didn't want to hurt people's feelings too much, so. All right, so let's see. We're going to come down here to the four. So the four, oh, we missed the knot. We are running out of space on these nails here. The four, when they are in a place of growth, will move towards the one, the perfectionist, where they will become more objective and a bit more practical. But when they are in a place of stress or disintegration, they will move towards the two, and the, like an unhealthy two, they will become a bit overly involved and a little bit needy. Not that any twos that I know would ever be needy. <laughs> You have to be careful what you say sometimes, because sometimes you have to be careful with who it is you live with. Okay, um, so for me, I, I personally haven't been blessed to have like fours in my immediate life circle, at least none, none that I'm aware of or none that I could point to and go, oh yeah, yeah, they're clearly a four. Um, and, and part of the thing is, I think statistically, like there are fewer, fours like the smaller, smaller group the smaller type of people. Um, and not only that, but because they're a bit rare, if they are a four, they probably don't want to be identified as a four because they don't want to be labeled or put into a box because they are unique, special individuals. And so if they find out that they're a four and then that there are other fours, then they are less special and their whole goal is to be special. So it's kind of like this weird thing. There may be more of you, but you just don't want us to know. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of giving you my personal experience with fours, I figured I'd give you a list of like, you might be a four if type thing, okay? So I have like seven things that if you don't know that you're a four or if you have somebody that you're kind of wondering they might be, here's, here's a list that may help you if you don't know and if you have somebody that may help you to understand them, okay? All right, so you might be a four if, one, you are incredibly unique and you love that about yourself. I'm a beautiful snowflake, right? <laughs> Uh, you might be a four if, because of your wide range of emotions, you regularly find yourself in conflict with others. <laughs> oh. uh, you might be a four if you are deeply creative, authentic, and emotionally strong. You might be a four if you often feel sad, but you aren't looking to be encouraged. 
You prefer to sit in your sadness until it passes. Just let me be in the darkness, right? You might be a four if you're often nostalgic and you like the unresolved feelings it stirs up. You might be a four if you feel a lack, you, that you lack a piece of yourself that everyone else seems to possess. And you might be a four if you find small talk nearly intolerable. Honesty and depth is crucial for growth in any relationship. So fours are some of the most creative, most um, empathetic, most, most like deepest people on the planet. They feel deeply. I've heard it said that fours don't have feelings, but they are feelings. Yeah, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, if, if we were to take our emotions and picture them like a box of crayons, that most of us are coloring with like an eight count or a 16 count box of emotional crayons. Fours are operating with like a 64 count box of emotional crayons, okay? They are warm, they are receptive, they prioritize listening to their own emotions, they're on a mission to discover what makes them special and different from the rest of the world. So it's their depth of emotion combined with their creativity that gives them this incredible ability to articulate the experience of the human spirit in a way that none of the other types really can. Okay, so let me give you a few memes to help illustrate this. Now, here's the first one. Enneagram 4 is when someone asks if the vintage sweater they're wearing is from Old Navy. <laughs> Why are you going to be like that? Okay. <laughs> Nobody, not a soul. Enneagram's 4. I myself am strange and unusual. <laughs> I myself am strange and unusual. 4 if I talk to you while I'm driving, I genuinely like you because that's supposed to be my music time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, here's a list of famous people that might be fours. Uh, Sufi mystic Rumi, Jackie Kennedy, Onassis, Edgar Allan Poe, Tennessee Williams, J.D. Salinger, Billy Holiday, Judy Garland, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, Alanis Morissette, Nicholas Cage, Johnny Depp. You can kind of see that in some of those people, can't you? Um, now, I do, while we're here, I want to add one more section to the next couple weeks uh, as we're wrapping up the series. Um, and it's going to be like Enneagram types in a situation because this will help us to get to know ourselves and each other a little bit better. So this is Enneagram types at a game night, okay? So here's how they all respond. This is, this is probably too, can you, is that too small to read? Uh, yeah, I will read it. <laughs> Sheesh. Okay, there, don't you get it? Isn't that great? Moving on. Um, so it says type one, game night. Type one, the perfectionist. They're confused about others not wanting to follow the rules. Also kind of into the idea of having stations. Type two, the helper, they're worried about the one person who is losing every game. <laughs> Type three, the achiever, they're in it to win it. Also, they create an elaborate, elaborate cheese platter for the experience. <laughs> Type four, the individualist, uh, they prefer in-depth games that have a story, story associated with them. Type five, the observer, the investigator, they want to be invited, but they probably won't go. Uh, type six, uh, game night, the loyalist, Weekly, because they want to be with their people. Type seven, the enthusiast, plays 10 short games, opts out of Monopoly, because it takes too long, and they don't have the attention span. Type eight, <laughs> the challenger, cards against humanity. Um, type nine, the peacemaker, not a big fan of the timer, to be honest. And why do we have to publicly reveal our answers for every game? <laughs> so here, this is why I love this. If you've ever had the thought, like, why can't people see the world the way I do? Why can't, I, I was driving home the other day and I saw something and I thought, why don't, it was something stupid. I was just going through my own thoughts. I was like, why can't people do this better? And then I was like, oh, Seth, you're doing a whole series at church about why 
people see the world. Like, your way is not the only way. So you can come to experience like a, like a game night, and you may all be having this, sh- this shared moment, but you all may be having a very different experience because we all don't think the same. We don't see the same. We don't observe the same world. We're all coming at it from a different perspective. And this happens, like, throughout everything. This isn't just game night. This is... Like comes into effect when whether it's game night, whether it's church, whether it's politics, whether it's the Bible, whether it's God, we're all approaching this through a slightly different lens, and that's okay. Like we need that. We need that variety. If we all thought the same way, like I don't think it would actually be better. We we might get along maybe, but I don't think it would be better. Okay, now back to the force. So. Our Bible character for today, for the fours, is going to be David. Now, sometimes David gets typed as like a three as the achiever, or sometimes as a seven, the enthusiast. But I think there's evidence here to make a case for David being a four with a three wing, with the achiever wing. So throughout the Bible, we see that the story, in the, or throughout the life of David, we see he was a passionate man. He's a man after God's own heart, and the result of his passion for God is that he becomes one of Israel's great kings, right? He envisioned the city of, of Jerusalem as the prominent place of worship of God and being the ruling, ruling authority. He was a unique and original and true to himself. He was artistic. He was creative. He was expressive. He played music. He wrote poetry. Uh, he bared his soul through his work, and he occasionally let his passions and envy get the best of him. Okay, so let's look at a few life events from the life of David and kind of point to some of this. So from the very beginning, uh, the prophet Samuel shows up to anoint David as the future king of Israel. At this time, Saul is in charge. Saul is king. Something happens. The spirit of God departs from Saul. Then Saul is being tormented by an evil spirit. So one of his servants says to Saul, like, hey, why don't we get somebody who can come play music and maybe give you some peace in your spirit and your soul? Saul says, that's a great idea. Do you know anybody? And the guy says, actually, you're in luck. I do know somebody. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 16. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord is with him. So they're like, great, go get that guy. We need him here. So from the very beginning of David's story, He's already standing out. He's a bit unique. He stands out. Like, people know who he is. Dude can play the liar. Dude can fight. Dude's a model. Dude can speak well, right? He, he has this ability to express his thoughts and ideas in a way that people go, oh, oh, that guy, that guy knows some things. He's, he speaks. And not only that, but God is with him. So from the very beginning of the story, we have these kind of like four type vibes that we see coming into to play. Now, you skip into the next chapter, chapter 17. You have the story of David and Goliath, right? You're familiar with the story. Goliath is taunting Saul and the, and the entire uh, Israelite army, and no one's willing to do anything about it. So David, with his love and his passion for God, has this opportunity to pursue not only living for God, but also he has a chance to stand out because no one else is willing to go fight the giant. So he goes to face Goliath one-on-one, right? Making, he's, he's, he's making his name for himself. He's, he's being the individualist. So David makes his way to fight with Goliath. Goliath makes fun of him. He's like, who's this little boy that's showing up to fight me? But then David gives this little speech, right? And, and in that last passage, what did it say? That he spoke well. So we know that he has this ability to articulate his thoughts and feelings and ideas well. So I want you to watch what he says and pay attention to how well he does with it because it's like everything you would want in this situation, right? If, if, if it was me going to face Goliath, I would stand in front of him and it would be like, hey, s- stop it. <laughs> Come on. 
you stop, you're bad. Okay, but watch, watch what David says, because this is like the perfect thing for this moment. Uh, 1 Samuel 17. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Yeah, that's like the, that's like the perfect thing, right? Like it's strong, but it's humble. It's fierce, but it's not ego driven. It's specific because it's like painting a picture of their dead bodies and the animals <laughs> eating them. Like, it's great. He's able to wonderfully articulate and express this emotion and this sentiment and create this picture that everyone there that could hear it could connect to and be excited for. Like, this, this is the gift of the four. Now, we fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You have the story of David and Bathsheba. Again, uh, I think this story is quite revealing when it comes to the fours. Not only does it reveal, I think, this primary sin of envy, right? Like he, there's something that he wants that he can't have, but also he's doing it not just because he can't have it, but also because it makes him feel better about himself as the individualist. But then he sleeps with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, then there's some problems, and then like God's upset, and then because he sleeps and has a baby, then he has to send her husband to the front lines to die in battle. It's, it's like a days of our lives whole sort of thing, right? So in that process, God sends the prophet Nathan to go confront him about his sin. And what's interesting about this is how he does this. How does the prophet confront David, possibly the four, with sin? Well, he shows up and he tells a story. He tells this story in which he says, hey, there was this rich guy and this rich guy had a whole bunch of animals, sheep, goats, cows, all the things. And then there was this poor guy and the poor guy only had like a little lamb and the, the poor guy raised the little lamb like as its own child. And then one night a traveler came to visit the rich guy and the rich guy, instead of taking one of his many sheep or lambs or whatever they, to eat, he went and he took the one lamb from the poor guy. And David gets immediate, like, furious at the whole thing. Like, he couldn't believe that somebody would do such a thing, right? So watch what happens. 2 Samuel, verse 15. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David gets irate about this story and this situation. And in the very next verse, Nathan says to David, David, you are that man. David was the rich guy with the many wives, not animals, but wives, although they probably thought of him in the same way in that time. So he goes and takes this other man's one wife who only had one, and David is irate at the story of the same thing he did. So because Nathan confronts him and because he like realizes this and because of the consequences of his actions, David then enters this time of like fasting and mourning. He goes into this dark time of wrestling and pleading with God, right? You see, if David had been a one, the perfectionist, all Nathan would have had to do to say is, hey, you broke the, the laws, the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, right? The, the Ten Commandments say, don't lie, don't kill, don't commit adultery, this sort of thing. That's all David would have had confront Saul with, or David with, Nathan would have confront David with in order to like get him back on track, but he didn't. 
If David was a three, Nathan would have just had to appeal to David's focus on his success. Like, hey, like, if you want to be a successful king in, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the people, like, this whole affair thing could, like, derail your, your successes. But he doesn't do either of those things. He comes at him with a story. Because symbols and metaphors and, and, sto- and poems and, and stories appeal more deeply to the heart of the four. The story did not make the issue into a moral discussion about idolatry. Or idolatry. The story helped David to discover the truth for himself through his feelings. David's anger at the story allowed the prophet to speak to David's heart. David knew the laws. David knew the teachings of his faith. What he needed was somebody to help guide him to see the truth through his feelings, through his emotions. Yeah. Now, uh, one other thing to, to me, probably one of the more compelling cases for David's foreignness this is writing of the Psalms. David wrote like 73, 75 of the Psalms. And in these, you would see him expressing joy and sadness and fear and confidence. There is beauty and wisdom and sorrow. There's this whole wide range of human emotions. And we could spend a whole lot of time here. There's 73 of them. So I want to do 72. Um, how much? Okay, so um, we're just going to look at one. This would be a really familiar one, Psalms 23, but I want you just to listen to, to this potentially four and the depth and the insight to this. Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How many of us have gone through a difficulty and looked towards something like this, or maybe even this specific passage, and found comfort? Right? What's he doing here? He's articulating this particular experience of the human existence. And we feel that, don't we? We, we feel those words. He's connecting with that. He speaks openly and honestly about walking into and through the darkness and still manages to paint this beautiful picture of peace and calm. He, he writes in such a way that he connects us to this deeper longing that we all experience from time to time, whether we're able to communicate it or not. We read that and we go, yes, that's what I was feeling. That's what I needed. That's what I needed to hear. I want to be by the refreshing. I need my soul refreshed. Right? This is the beauty and the difficulty of the four. They are deeply in tune with all of the feels, both the good and the bad, And because they're so in tune with all their emotions, all their feelings, it can be a very, very heavy burden for them, but it also gives them this incredible insight. And because they are usually so very creative, they either have an ear for music or an eye for the aesthetics or or, or the gift with words and all this stuff, because they have that, they're usually the ones who are pointing to the things that most of us miss. Or because of this, they're able to, to see the beauty that most of us may overlook or they're able to express this deep emotion with some sort of tangibility for the rest of us to be able to connect to. Like, it really is this wonderful 
gift. And ultimately, the four is, what the four is reflecting to us is the nature and character of God that's revealing God's creativity and depth. That's what we see in the four, God's creativity and, their, and depth. You see, the God of the Bible is a God of creativity and wonder and awe and beauty. And when we fail to see this, our picture and understanding of God becomes very, like, muted. It becomes very black and white. It becomes very beige, right? And God is not beige. God is big and dynamic and creative and bold and full of color and vibrancy. God is a creator. God is the creator. And the world that we get to experience is an expression of God's beauty and creativity. The scripture is filled with all sorts of references and and, and reminders that point to God's creativity and God's beauty, where God is shaping and forming and molding and knitting things together, knitting things together, everything that is. It talks about like the heavens declaring the glory of the Lord, and, and, and you have essentially been created by the great artist, right? Psalms 19, which David also wrote, interestingly enough, he says what? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world, Right? This big, beautiful world and universe that we get to experience is filled with beauty and wonder and awe, and it all speaks to the creativity of the creator, the creator that you have been created in the image of and who is also blessed with you with the ability to also go and create. The beauty of creation is always and continually pointing to the one who created it because ultimately, like Paul says in Romans, Part of the way that we un- come to understand who God is is through what God created. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Yes, we understand God from what has been written, but we also understand God from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I mean, have you taken time recently to observe closely, to marvel at what has been made? Like, have you ever thought about, I was thinking about this the other day, that the sky is blue? (laughs) This is the dumb stuff that goes through my head. The sky is blue, it's kind of like, oh yeah, like we take this for granted, we learn about this. I mean, there's a scientific reason. You can keep that up, just leave the blue sky up. Sure, it looks kind of like that some days. Not a cloud in the sky, it's a beautiful day. So if we, there, there's a scientific reason this happens, right? Like the white light of the sun, the white light of the sun is like coming through the atmosphere and then the gases and the particles disrupt that light, you know, like a prism. And so the light waves separate. And so the reason that it shows up blue is because the blue light wave is the shortest and so it gets distributed the most easily. So that's why our sky is blue. But here's the thing is like it didn't, It didn't have to be. God could have made the light work different. God could have made the atmosphere work different. Maybe we could have had a brown sky. It'd be weird. It'd be weird to have a brown sky, but we don't have a brown sky. We have this beautiful blue sky, this beautiful blue sky that is capable of changing and shifting into so many different wonderful and brilliant colors. Our sky is blue. It's weird. It's wild, but it's awesome. We get to see that almost every day. Like, wow. How do we not marvel at that? We take it for granted. We get in the car because the sun's too hot and we try to, you know, we miss it. We're not paying attention to the beauty that's right in front of us. Or think about like the trees that we walk by or drive by on a regular basis. Trees of all different kinds and shapes and sizes. 
Have you ever just stood and observed like an oak tree for a while? We've got oaks all over the place around here. Have you ever stood and observed like a big, old oak? Have you ever been to South Carolina and seen the angel oak? Do you know the angel oak? This thing right here, this thing is crazy. This thing is absolutely crazy. Charleston is outside Charleston. Uh, uh, estimate, like on the conservative side, like 400 to 500 years old. On the like, like generous side, some people think it's something to like uh, over 1,000 plus years old. Um, this, this thing at its base, the trunk, it, it's like 28 feet around. Okay, 28 feet around. They say that from tip to tip of its branches, it's about 187 feet wide. That this thing under that... It, cast, it has the ability to cast shade over about 17,000 square feet. 17,000 square feet of shade. Like, how many square feet is your house? Don't say it out loud, but just think in your head. How many square feet is your house? How many of your houses will fit into the shade of that tree? Right? And not only that, but if you just look at it, they're, they're so fascinating because practically, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Right? Practically, most trees just go straight up and their branches come out, but this is like rebel tree. It's like going all over the place. It's, it's a bit sporadic, but yet there seems to be this, this bit of a movement to it. There seems to be this strange beauty to it. And every year, thousands of people come to see this tree, take a picture of this tree, and stand in, in its presence. It, it, it's almost like when you look at something like this, it's almost like God is a lot less concerned with its practicality and more concerned with the aesthetics and the mesmerizing presence. <laughs> yeah, it works, but also look at how kind of crazy and wild and cool it is. Right? Maybe this is why the oak tree has been revered and sometimes even worshipped by humanity throughout history. Yeah, it's weird, it's wild, but how cool is that? Or what about like bioluminescence? That's the thing in our world. Dinoflagellate bioluminescence, do you know this? Tiny micro, like marine organism, plants and animals that when disturbed, they emit this blue-green light from their bodies. That's weird. And why, it's Avatar, right? Like this thing is real. This is a real thing. And this is in our world. This is in the world we live in. And what's crazy is something like this, this is... There are five places on the whole planet where this happens every year, the same time, every year, every year, every year. And we are 45 minutes from one of the five places in the world, right? Right in the intercoastal, Titusville, Cocoa Beach, Merritt Island, all the... It's right here in our backyard. God didn't have to create things that glow from their bodies, but he did, like... And how wild is that? It's magical. Like, have you, have you ever gone and just paddled or surfed through this stuff? Like, it's, it's so very, very cool. And that's a part of the world that we live in, that, that's in front of us. These microscopic plants and animals that glow, they're a thing that bring even more beauty and color to our world that is already incredible and our universe and our planet that is already incredible. You see, in the beginning, God created. And because God is creator... Because God is a creator, and what the creation reveals to us all day, every day, is the profound creativity and beauty of who God is. And this is so very important for us to see because it is intended, it is intended to reveal to us what God is like. That's what Paul says. So that these things are created so that they can reveal through what has been made. 
This has been created so you can have a better picture of who God is. And if we miss this, we will have a very drab picture and understanding of the divine. And what it seems like to me is that so many people have such a small beige picture, a small, very narrow, limited, black and white, and God is trapped in these pages and a few lines of the Bible, and we've just, like God is so much bigger and more beautiful and better (laughs) we've trapped him. Why? God is creative and dynamic and thoughtful and artistic. And the beauty of this experience that we get to have in life is that we get to spend our lives exploring God's artwork. Like, what a gift. What a gift. We're like, yeah, but God doesn't want me to say swear words. (laughs) It's bigger than that so much bigger than that. If you're here today and you struggle <clears throat> with seeing the ever-present beauty of the world that we live in, or maybe you, you, you find it difficult to like, you're afraid to be different or go against the flow or stand out, or maybe you have this small beige picture of God, right? Maybe you need to find yourself a healthy four because this is kind of what they're built for. A healthy four reveals to us the creativity, the beauty, and the depth of God. So if you're here today and you're four, uh, here's a few tips for like helping, helping you grow a little bit. Number one, uh, your feelings are important, but you are not your feelings. Okay, this is important to keep in mind. Um, like just because you feel bad doesn't mean that everything is bad. You're still surrounded by a whole lot of good. Number two, avoid putting things off until you're in the right mood because if you know yourself, your moods are a bit up and down, a bit roller coastery. And the truth is, you're typically feeling in a better place when you're like doing stuff, when you're active. So, like, don't wait to do stuff. Do the thing anyways because it will make you feel better, even though you don't feel like doing it. Number three, uh, work on developing self-discipline. Uh, developing a routine it won't will not undermine your freedom or your individuality. And again, you're in a better place when you're doing stuff anyways. So work on the routine. And then number four, don't let your imagination determine your reality. Four is you spend a lot of time in your imagination and you're creating all these scenarios about all the things that could or couldn't happen and then most of which don't even come to fruition anyway. So you end up using a lot of time and energy for something that doesn't really lead you anywhere, especially if it's a negative place. So don't get caught up in your own little worlds. Four is here's your note to self. Dear self, because you are God's masterpiece, Practice loving yourself first today. Remember, you are not who your feelings say you are. Because you are God's masterpiece, practice loving yourself first today. Remember, you are not who your feelings say you are. Okay, now, if you know a four or have a four in your life and want to do better at that relationship, here's a few tips for dealing with fours. One, be authentic and sincere. Like, they don't like the shallow, fluff stuff. Like, they want to be deep, so be authentic with them. That's what they prefer. Uh, Two, notice when they're upset, but don't try to fix it. Yes, acknowledge that they have the feelings and acknowledge that that's okay. They don't, they, they, they like the feels, so you don't have to, like, cheer them up when they're sad. So just take the day off. Like, just... Okay, just give them their space. I see you. It's okay. Be sad if you want to. Uh, Number three, don't tell them they're being too sensitive or overreacting, (laughs) right? Because this minimizes who they are, which will be more hurtful because they want to be an individual. And so if you, you you get what I'm saying. Okay, number four, uh, affirm their individuality so that they feel seen and understood because that's what 
That's what they need. That's what they want. They want to stand out. They want to be the individual, right? The, the trick for them, for you, if you're a four, is learning that like, you're already special as you are. So that's okay. So for me, you know, this whole thing, and I, why, why I appreciate this series, is just how it's helped me to deal with people. And it's not that I have it all figured out. I don't. I screw it up all the time. I, I see sometimes the things I should do and how I should handle a situation, and then sometimes I do the opposite. Um, <laughs> that's my stuff that, that I'm carrying. But what I know is that <clears throat> sometimes the things that irritate us the most about people actually... I've come to see maybe revealing to us something about the nature and character of God. So if you find yourself getting frustrated at like a type four because that's not your type and you, you're struggling to understand it or you don't get it, like, yeah, that, that'll happen. If, if you get frustrated because like with the four, um, like why does everything have to be such a big deal? <laughs> or maybe you get irritated with the four because like they can't just do something the normal way like everyone else. Like why can't you just conform a little bit? Yeah, or if you get irritated with the four because like, I don't want to always share all the deep feelings all the time. Sometimes it's okay just to laugh at a fart joke. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't have to be... Maybe the thing to keep in mind is that even though some of this stuff may drive you crazy, it's the four's ability to connect with their emotions and to be able to articulate emotions through their creativity that is their gift, that is their superpower because they are the ones that bring beauty and wonder and truth into our world. They are the ones that are reflecting God's creativity and depth. And when I can learn to see this in them, it helps to give me a greater appreciation for who they are, which helps me to love them better. And when I can learn to see this in them, it gives me like this tangible expression, an example of who God is and what God is like, which helps me to like understand and know and grow in my relationship with God, which helps me to love God better. And so according to Jesus, like loving God and loving others is like the two most important things we're supposed to be doing, right? So we are the many faces of God, the God who created us in God's image. And we need each other to be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be so that we collectively have a more complete picture of who God is. We're going to go into our time of communion this is a time where we honor and reflect and remember the great lengths that God endured to be in relationship with us, that God offered God's self in the form of Jesus, that through his life, death, and resurrection, God experienced <laughs> both our sorrows and our hurts and our joys, that through Jesus, we are offered freedom, forgiveness, and new life, and so we take these emblems, the bread and the juice that remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus, and we remember that this is where our hope comes from, that God loved us enough to send the Son on our behalf. So when you're ready, we, we have time to go through this. We have our ushers around the building that will serve you. Um, if you're joining us online today, feel free to grab your stuff and participate with us in this moment. If you're here today and you're struggling to see the beauty of the world, maybe you need somebody to pray with you, over you, for you. We've got our prayer people that will be on the sides over there by the cross. Raise your hand there. Um, maybe today you're feeling like just a bit lost or a bit uncertain. Uh, maybe 
maybe you need to like turn all of that over to the creator. Maybe you need to give your life to the creator. If that's something that you need to do today, please talk with one of our prayer people. Robin's over there now. Um, they'd love to pray with you, for you, over you, talk to you about any questions you have, what's going on in your life, any decisions you need to make. Feel free to, t- to, to take advantage of that. Um, so we're going to pray, and we're going to give you space. We're going to do our type-specific prayer. Hopefully this will help each type to feel seen. And hopefully, if this is not your type, this will help you to learn to see them better. So we're going to do our type-specific prayer, and then our general prayer, and then we'll give you time and space to commune. Okay? So the prayer for the fours. Dear God, thank you for seeing me, for never stopping to seek me. Open me to the intimate connection between us that I may rest in your grace. Empty me of all the ways I abandon myself, these self-rejections that evoke shame. Soften my comparing mind and my longing that I may know gratitude for what I have and for who I am. Guide me in the path of appreciation for the beauty and possibility that surrounds me, that is within me. Sacred source of my life, Ground me in my inner calm and remind me of the holy and the beautiful in the ordinary. Open my eyes and my heart to see your grace, your grace-filled touch in all of life. From this seeing, I know there really are no ordinary moments, for all is sacred. Well, and there it is, that message uh, from our lead pastor, Seth Kane on the Enneagram 4s, the creativity and depth of God. Um, of course, I'm biased because I'm the worship pastor, uh, but if you, if you only engage with this service through the podcast, I feel like you're missing out on um, uh, kind of a, a pretty cool time of worship that we had uh, in the service this week. So I would encourage you, go find us on uh, YouTube or uh, youtube.com slash at the foundry C, just the letter C. And um, uh, check out the worship component of this service too. We, we kick things off a little bit differently. We did a, a, a good bit longer of a response time uh, after the message. And, and again, I'm biased, but I just felt like it was, uh, it was a pretty cool Sunday uh, in that regard. Uh, whether you do that or not, we're glad that you're here with us at the Foundry Church Podcast. We appreciate you spending a little bit of your week with us, and uh, we hope that we'll see you back here next week for the Foundry Church Podcast. Have a great one.